Welcome everyone to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and this is episode number five with Humble the Poet. According to the National Library of Medicine, it is scientifically proven that when we choose to believe in our ability to overcome obstacles and create a positive change for ourselves and the world around us, we manifest a new tool in our mind that enhances our problem-solving practices. You can think of it just like working out. Muscle mass is built repeatedly by lifting the things that are designed to weigh us down. Kobe Bryant said it best. What separates the greats from the all-time greats is their ability to self-assess, diagnose weaknesses, and turn those flaws into strengths. With the proper mindset, the power of our perception can allow us to become a student of our difficult times and to help us find value and strength in the things that may be weighing us down. Putting this into practice doesn't just help you uplift your spirit. It's also been shown under structural MRIs to change the gray matter composition in parts of the brain that have to do with responding to and coping with stress. This is part of the reason why neuroscientists in 2019 are so interested in developing a better understanding of the nature and importance of experiencing mental conflicts when it comes to developing a healthier relationship with failure. That's why in today's episode, I'm sitting down with an individual whose work has been medspiring me to have a healthy relationship with failure for more than five years now. Humble the Poet just published the book, which is called Unlearn, 101 Simple Truths for a Better Life, that'll be dropping next month on April 9th. My man sent me a signed copy of his work, and I had the honor of reading it in its entirety before this interview. It's available for pre-order right now, and the link to that will be in the description below. In this episode, Humble the Poet and I have an open dialogue about mental health, bullying, nature versus nurture, how he overcomes self-doubt, his journey through music and art, psychedelics, and the greatest life lessons he's acquired through his journey. For those of you who are hearing about Humble for the first time, He's a Toronto-bred MC and spoken word artist with an aura that embodies diversity and resiliency. With tattoos, a beard, a head wrap or a turban, and a silly smile, Humble commands attention. He stimulates audiences with ideas that challenge conventional wisdom and go against the grain. He's a best-selling author, was featured in Apple's first Canadian ad for their shot on iPhone campaign, and a longtime collaborator with Lily Singh. Humble has a unique ability to use his gifts to be in service of those around him. A wise man once said, I did not start becoming successful until I stopped thinking about myself and started thinking about how I could be useful to other people. A principle I hold closely to my heart and a principle I believe Humble embodies entirely. This one gets better and better as it goes on and at the end of the podcast, Humble did such an incredible job answering the questions some of you submitted via our Instagram. Be sure to let us know what you think. You can send us a message through Instagram or tag Medspiration in your stories while also tagging your friends. Let us know that you're out there and that you're listening. And a special thank you to our sponsor today, Caribbean Medical University. 
Are you interested in becoming a practicing medical doctor in the United States? CMU is a fully accredited medical school that offers you an incredible opportunity to study abroad in one of the most beautiful Caribbean islands and then transition to the United States for your hospital training. I personally know some great resident physicians here in the Chicago area who went to CMU and loved the experience. Caribbean Medical University has partnered with Medspiration to bring you a once in a lifetime discount. You can visit cmumed.org forward slash Medspiration and enter the discount code MDSPR to have your entire application fee waived. That's a $75 value. Apply today and see if medicine is in your future. And without further ado, let the Medspiration begin. Focus that energy, get it, boy. Never the enemies kill up, boy. Make them a memory, show up and let me see. Giving up, never me, get it, boy. You're like a tea bag. You don't know how strong you are until you're in hot water. Mm. And I think for me, I had to hit that rock bottom. Life at the bottom, nobody but God got him. And I know the one of the changing points for me was I used to sleep with music playing. And then I heard, you know, while the music was playing, and then in the morning, one morning, uh, J. Cole's Dollar in a Dream Part 3 came on. And he says, he goes, what are you going to do? Are you going to grow bitter or grow cold? Or are you going to rise out of it? Do you fall, grow bitter and grow cold? No longer fighting now, the only thing you grow is old. Or do you flip that fucking dollar to a dream? Whether a scholar or a fiend, watch a pawn become a king. If this was the last day of your life, what would the decision be? And I've been, I've been really kind of pushing that, you know, towards myself. I started having my tough times and my challenges. I started to see the value in them, and I stopped kind of looking them, looking at them as bad, bad luck, bad days, bad news, and really tried to be like, hey, what you know, what can I gain from this? And you know, it's no different than you know seeing how 50 Cent turned getting shot nine times into a career. You know, we have the power to take something, and if we don't judge it, we can really manipulate it into whatever we want to be. I got 10 years to fill a stadium, but only two minutes to fill your cranium. Humble the poet, signing in. But humble, what if I already made a bunch of stupid decisions in the past, and now I keep reliving and regretting them? Is it too late? I'm glad you asked, my kind of handsome friend. When you think about the regrets you have in your life, instead of kicking yourself over them, look at those choices and ask yourself, was it simply a case of you choosing the short term over the long term? And if it was, learn from it. And if you learn from it, then this regret should no longer be a regret, but instead, a jewel of wisdom that is helping you level up in your life. I can't go back, I can't go back, I ain't I make it this far just to make it this far. This type of mindfulness is not a light switch. It's more like our mind is a pond, and we're trying our best to keep the water calm. Because once you do, you can see clearly into it. And that's why it's called mental clarity. Humble the Poet, welcome to the Medspiration Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, today we're going to be having a conversation with a man who's been one of my heroes for the last five years. Humble, your writing, it's inspired me so much through four years of medical school. And bro, your insights... The things you write on Instagram, they've helped me through my own introspections and my own dreams. So I wanted to thank you for adding to the world the way that you do. And my intention today is to have an open dialogue regarding mental health and your book, 101 Life Lessons. I had the blessing of reading this book before we get to talk. And, you know, this is actually the signed copy. So I got your got your John Hancock right there, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, um, you got that. That's actually the Canadian version. 
that's a unique one. That one's not going to be uh, making its way to the States anytime soon. So hold on to that. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? I am a Toronto born and raised uh, artist, creative, and I kind of do everything, bring ideas to life, put words together. Uh, in a previous life, I was an elementary school teacher. And uh, pretty much just after work, I started going to spoken word poetry events as a way to, you know, kind of scratch my creative itch and as well as meet girls and uh, started performing on stage. And then that took me from one place to another. And then in my artistic journey, started digging deeper into the world, trying to have a better understanding of why the world was the way it was and started talking about social issues. And then that evolved into me kind of going even deeper and realizing that, you know, it's all about the human condition. So. Oh, yeah. uh, I became a, a master student of the human condition, writing about it, exploring it. Um, at the same time, just had my own trials and tribulations, uh, leaving my job uh, as, a, as a as a school teacher, and and my safe and secure salary to pursue full time art. Uh, you know, as an adult, and that whole journey in itself required me to really have a better understanding of myself, better understanding of life, and you know how to how to feel better and make life feel lighter without you know, saying any fluffy Tumblr bullshit. And uh, that kind of got me into writing a lot. And then the audience, you know, that I had at the time motivated me to write a book. And then I was like, this is great. I can sell this book at my shows and it'll be cool. But then the book continued to take a life of its own and it just keeps growing. And um, actually the first, what you're holding right there is the second book, but the first book is getting its, uh, its uh, debut uh, in the States now in April with Harper Collins. April. So it's been about 10 years now you've been on your creative journey since you retired from the school teaching, right? It's been 10 years since I started taking Humble the Poet serious. And then I left my job right at the beginning of 2011. So I'm at eight years full time. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. So, you know, after reading your book, I love the way you crafted it together. Each chapter is really short and sweet. And, um, most of them are a little bit around one page or two pages, so they're really easy to digest. So what inspired you to write it this way? Uh, there's actually um, a, a lot of writers that I kind of gravitated towards were the ones that kept it short and sweet. And what I really kind of wanted was something that was convenient, uh, not so much of a bore. I'm not the biggest reader. You know, I'll grab a book and start reading it and get real tired real quick. And I think um, trying to you know, the teacher and me always like, you know, make accommodations, meet meet your audience where they're at. So I really wanted to create something that, A, I, I didn't get bored reading, but B, also understanding that, you know, an audience in their teens and their early 20s that, you know, just used to flicking their thumb on Instagram with just this immediate gratification can kind of handle this. And at the same time, too, just kind of really understanding the idea of not chunking too much information. I mean, you know, you're a med student, you understand how much you can take in before, you know, it's just, you're just, you're just spinning your wheels at, after a certain time. So really trying to create that same situation with this book. So it's like, Hey, don't make it too long. Make every chapter one to two pages. You know, you don't have to read it in order. You can yeah. kind of pick it up randomly, do it, read it the way you want to read it. And, you know, kind of allowing it to be much more convenient quick and easy, but at the same time, not being as unhealthy as, let's say, fast food. Yeah. Hey, it created that vibe too, because, you know, I'd read like a chapter a day, you know, I've kind of had this book for a while now and it was so, it was nice to go back and feel like, oh, I just read one page and I've finished a chapter and just kind of reflect on that for a little bit. So, 
you know, I'm going to jump straight into the book, man. Um, I enjoyed it thoroughly. And, you know, I want to start with the very last lesson, which is lesson 101. It's titled Duk Daru. So there's a, yeah. there's a there's a verse in the Guru Granth Sahib that mentions Duk Daru Suk Rogpea Ja Suk Tamna Hoy. And the translation in English means pain is medicine and comfort is disease. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, so, you know, we always hear about life begins at the at the end of your comfort zone. And, you know, Bill Gates says success is a lousy teacher. So, you know, I've been thinking this trend that in philosophy, which was, you know, Dogdaru was probably written in the 1500s. So, you know, a solid 500 years ago, this idea was also explored so poetically and so simply, you know, and it was written in poetry. So it's not even written in a complete sentence. And I just, I found that amazing. And just really, once I became an adult and I was able to kind of get my own education on Sikh history and Sikh philosophy beyond kind of what my parents were able to to teach me, um, it helped me start to realize like, hey, these guys really were students of the human condition uh, and human ideas. And, and I, it made me realize that, hey, this stuff is universal, not because it's some sort of supreme truth and it's not because they're the, or, the you know, the originators of this truth. It's because they're keeping this truth alive. And this truth is, you know, it, it, you can see Confucius talking about this stuff. You can see Buddha talking about this stuff. You know, these are these types of truths that, you know, they don't need to be discovered. They just need to be kept alive. Someone needs to breathe some air into them every once in a while to keep them floating through the air. So I think for me, you know, I, once I started having my tough times and my challenges, I started to see the value in them. And I stopped kind of looking them, looking at them as bad, bad luck, bad days, bad news, and really tried to be like, hey, what, you know, what can I gain from this? And, you know, it's no different than, you know, seeing how 50 Cent turned getting shot nine times into a career. You know, we have the power to take something. And if we don't judge it, we can really manipulate it into whatever we want to be. And this isn't something mystical or magical. This is just literally having a better attitude and a better perspective. 100% 100% man. You know, I was I just had a conversation with Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant's trainer. His name's Tim Grover. He's a sing. So Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant's trainer was actually a sing, right? And oh, He he was a D1 collegiate basketball player, which for us Browns that's about as good as it gets. And he ended up blowing out his knee, right? And what he ended up doing, he said that that was the best thing that ever happened to him cuz when he blew out his knee, he was able to realized he was supposed to be a trainer for professional athletes. And then he went on to become one of the greatest trainers of all time. And we actually talked about a, something that was published in Stanford. It was talking about post-traumatic growth. So individuals who are able to look at trauma as something they could grow from, something they could learn from, they're actually able to do exactly what you just said. They're able to transform that into something that's beneficial, right? And when we when we talk about muscle mass, which you mentioned in the book, so muscle mass is created repeatedly by lifting things that are designed to weigh us down, right? And uh, that that holds true mentally, physically, and spiritually. I'm a, I'm a big believer of this concept. That's why I love that you ended the book with this. Next, I wanted to talk about lesson 100, Osama, right? So you mentioned uh, after 9-11, the most popular beard and turban on the planet was Osama bin Laden. And I read how that impacted your life. So when 9-11 happened, I was 11 years old. And all of a sudden, man, I was being bullied for just being brown. And I didn't even wear a turban. You know, yeah. you, you, you wore a turban. So I can only imagine the discrimination you were faced with, right? So 
somewhere out there right now is a little brown boy who's being bullied just for being the way he looks, right? So what's your advice to someone like that? Um, find the value in it. It ain't going away. And, uh, you know, especially if you are a, uh, you know, if you are of thick heritage, you know, we're, we're, you know, we, we thrive off a little bit of friction, a little bit of conflict, you know, it's been in our history. It's, uh, it probably goes the other way around. Be, be a little bit more uneasy if everything's working out well. There's always got to be a little bit of resistance. As you said, you know, we build muscle mass through resistance training. You know, if, if you had a, if you had an easy day at the gym, you're probably not going to make much progress. And I think for me now that I've been old enough to kind of watch my story play out, you know, the, the value of all the challenges I went through uh, with racism, discrimination, you know, being conveniently randomly screened at every airport I've ever been to, you know, there's a lot of value that came from it that helped really, you know, create a layer of skin for me that, you know, you're never going to have to worry about me getting cyber bullied or letting the internet impact my mental health. But at the same time, it also allowed me to build a level of compassion I probably would have never had, you know, for anybody who is identified as the other or an underrepresented group and, you know, struggling to find their own voice. And I think it's really important when we start looking at it that way, because what it does is it helps us find our strength. If, you know, we lived in a society where guys like you and me, you know, were the majority and our ideas were the majority, you know, we'd probably suffer a lot of atrophy, mental, spiritual, you know, atrophy, because there wouldn't be a much challenge. There wouldn't be a much discourse where, you know, I grew up in a position where every day I had to defend my identity. You know, in the beginning, it probably wasn't even my identity. It's just what was given to me through birth and, you know, going through the going through the motions of wishing I was just normal, you know, wishing I could just blend in and getting a little bit older, traveling places, realizing how much I stood out, you know, not being able to be a tourist anywhere. Because if I, you know, if I went to festival, you want to just watch what's happening, everybody stops and looks at you. You know, and, and right, rightfully so. They've never seen someone that looks like me. If I see a guy walking down the street with a purple mohawk and 18 tattoos on his face, I'll probably stare too. And I think for me in the beginning, that was a point of frustration. Um, but I think what it also did was it helped me build a level of resilience that is really helping me now. And I think uh, in this modern age, with all the talk of, uh, you know, vocal minorities and underrepresented individuals, it's really put me in a position where I was like, hey, you know, I've kind of been through the gauntlet and I'm in a position to help people see a different perspective so they can empower themselves and, you know, not rely on self-pity or, or uh, you know, victimization as the, the only option when we encounter these challenges. And you start to realize too, like, hey, even if you went to, somebody grew up as a Caucasian kid in, in, a, in, a, in an all-Caucasian neighborhood in an all-Caucasian school, they were still finding reasons to pick on each other. You know, yeah. you know, picking on somebody for their weight or for their freckles or for being ginger or what have you. And, you know, our parents came from India, which is the, you know, the origins of the art of discrimination in so many different ways. So it's kind of, you know, we're, we're kind of the originators of this. So I, I don't take it personal. I mean, 9-11 did make it challenging. And, you know, my first trip to New York after that wasn't the most pleasant. But I'm glad I went through it. And I think it built a certain level of resilience. And, you know, I see what, what, my, what my nephew now, he, he, he's growing up in a community where that's not going to be as much of an issue. But at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm sure he'll have his own challenges. And I think what it did for me was 
allowed me to find more value in difficult times. You know, going back to Dogdaru, you know, it's all connected. Dog. Yeah, I believe that fully. And, you know, that's a theme that carries out throughout your book where you say the discomfort that comes with that discrimination is good. You learn from it. You grow from it. You connect with others based off of it. So, you know, I'm a firm believer, you know, being aware of that power of our perception, it goes a long way in taking control of them. And it seems like that's a really positive way to look at it overall. Like it's a way to look at your adversity as an opportunity. Definitely couldn't agree more with that. So next I wanted to talk about lesson 98. I wanted to connect it to a post that you did on Instagram where you mentioned you are not your beliefs and how that relates to markers and labels. Can you delve a little bit deeper into that? I used to work as a school teacher, and, and one of the big things that stood out to me was how much of an empty vessel a kid was. And it really started making you make you go back to your own self. You're like, whoa, like, how much of me is me, and how much of me is what's been taught to me or quote-unquote programmed? And often they call it, it's, it's a popular battle between nurture and nature, but, you know, you start to realize it's not a battle between the two. They work together. And it's really about understanding how your personal nurture and how your personal nature are kind of working together. And for me, when it came to, you know, these types of situations, I started asking myself, like, okay, so what values and beliefs do I hold and where did they come from? Whether it was believing in God, whether it was believing in right or wrong, whether it was leaning left politically, leaning right politically, you know, whether it was my favorite flavor of ice cream, how much of this was my natural, who I was, how much of it was taught. And I really try to stress to the audience is like, I don't really care what you believe. I just care how you believe and how you got those beliefs. And oftentimes people create their own cages around themselves with these beliefs that they have that they, you know, they limit themselves, they limit their own potential. And again, I'm not talking on some, you know, super mystical level that, you know, you can fly if you believe you can. I'm just talking about, hey, you can create a life that you want to create, and it may be beyond what the people in your neighborhood and your family think is right for you. Amen. And I think, yeah, so, and I think just the life that I've been able to live possible, so many things that would be considered even improbable for, you know, a young brown guy to, to do, witness, contribute, uh, you know, have an impact on, you know, I've been able to kind of see past that and accomplish past that. So now, you know, words like impossible don't have much meaning for me. And I think it doesn't necessarily require you to have a belief in something. It just requires you to have a better understanding of why you believe the things you believe. And um, it's, it's, it's been a tricky topic. because A lot of people don't ever want to touch on that. They don't want to offend people. But I think it's very, very, very important that people understand that your belief are just strongly held opinions. And we shouldn't be married to any of our beliefs. If anything, we should be comfortable with our beliefs being scrutinized. And we should find, in my personal opinion, happiness and joy when our beliefs are challenged. And even if we let go of them, because I do like the idea that who I am today is not the same guy I was five years ago. And who I'm going to be in five years is not the guy I am today. You know, medicine, we learn that a lot because, you know, as you're growing and learning how to be a caretaker, you realize you're wrong so many of times. So you might make an idea in your head about what you're supposed to do. And then you realize your superiors, they'll teach you where you're wrong. You know, and uh, I quickly learned going through med school that I have to embrace being wrong and I have to embrace it as an opportunity to learn because 
uh, that's how I'm going to continuously build on top of what I'm doing. It's not just about, oh, I got it figured out and now there's there's nothing more. It's always about challenging my beliefs and updating them regularly in a way that can integrate more information over time, right? So Yeah, uh, and I think as well for you as, as a med student but, uh, is that you guys also have see value in failure. So, you know, you conduct an experiment, whatever it may be, you know, every time something doesn't work, that's something that you can check off the list. You know, whether you're trying to do a diagnosis or what have you, like, all right, we tested for this, that came out negative. Most people, when they try something out and it comes out negative, they view that as a negative outcome. Yeah. You know, whereas as a student, you're like, hey, let me try this. That didn't work. All right, on to the next, on to the next. And there isn't a personal connection with the, with the outcome. And I think if more people took that approach to their own lives, you know, we dramatically improve our own personal conditions as well as having a healthier relationship with what we commonly call failure. Amen to that, man. You spoke about something Jay Shetty said once. It was, stop identifying the gaps in your life in relation to who's in the room, right? And this resonated so deeply with me. Can you tell us a little bit about what you and him meant? Well, I mean, Jay, Jay is just a magical creature. He, yeah, man. <laughs> it's, just, he, it's just a whole different, it's a whole different level of person with him. And, um, me and him, when I'm in LA, I get to just I, I I go over to his place and what we call we call him rooftop conversations. He lives in a, he lives in a uh, I guess it's like a it's like a it's like a condo slash hotel situation. So there's like a really nice rooftop and we sit on his rooftop uh, where they you know they got a little cabana and a pool and stuff and we just talk and we will just sit there and talk for hours and you know he'll say something and I'll just stop everything and start writing stuff down. I, I might say something and, and he might really resonate with it. And I think what happened was he was he was literally just explaining to me like a very boring logistical conversation about how he has a certain business set up. And I think I immediately said something along the lines of, man, I got to get that set up. And he kind of said something to me along the lines of like, well, if you weren't thinking about it yesterday, don't make it a priority today. Like you've only identified that gap because you heard me talk about it. Wow. And he goes, you know. Later on today, you're going to go sit with somebody else, talk to them about something, and then they're going to show you another gap. And he goes, that's, a, that's an endless gap, you know? It's an endless gap with whoever you meet. So, you know, today you met a, an entrepreneur who's five years ahead of you. Now you want to start structuring your business the way he did because you don't have a structured so-and-so. And then, to, you know, tomorrow you meet somebody with lower body fat than you. Now you're like, all right, I need to start focusing on, you know, losing weight. And then the day after you see somebody with a nicer car or, the day after you see somebody with a healthier family dynamic than you and you start focusing on that. So I think the really good thing he was trying to really encourage me was like, hey, stay your course. Don't let these conversations that we have deviate you from what you're already focused on, because we all have to acknowledge we only have 24 hours in a day. We only have a limited amount of decisions we can make a day and energy and love and attention that we can devote per day. And if we just start to immediately identify our gaps every time we see somebody else doing something different, it's wow. an endless journey, especially if you're talking about social media, because now you're just flicking your thumb through social media and you, now you start seeing people and they're going to, by default, help you identify new gaps in your life. And then you get to a point where you're just like, oh, I, I need a puppy. Someone's got a puppy in their picture. Then you're like, oh, I need to get my taxes done. I need to, you know, start setting up my website. I need to start doing stuff. And, and none of it is things that are actually important to you. They're just gaps that have been identified based off your interaction with somebody else. 
So what can we do? Like say, now that we're talking about this conversation, I know I'm going to become aware of every time I am seeing a gap. What's something you would tell to someone like me? Um, I think, hey, you got to know what's really important to you. And you have to recognize, you know, that you can only, you can do anything you want, but you can't do everything at once. So you really, you really have to focus on what's really important to you. And then from there, kind of stay the course. I think the common thing that I've seen with every single successful person I know, especially the ones who I saw start out and, you know, hit new highs, whether it be Lily or a couple of other artists I work with, it's the fact that they stuck with it. Yep. Sticking with it means, you know, it may not just, it may not be the blinders, but you're still... I'm on this course. I am focusing on this. This is something I'm excited and enthusiastic about. I am signed up for the challenges and problems that have come with it, but I'm not going to deviate tomorrow because all of a sudden, you know, somebody introduces a new social media program or a platform and I got to jump on that, start catching up to, to that bullshit or whatever. And so I say, you know, A, always continually focus on self-awareness because with self-awareness, you'll really have a better understanding of your own natural enthusiasms and maybe your chosen purpose or the purpose you decide for yourself and stay that course and yeah it's fine if somebody lets you realize hey i gotta register my business or hey i gotta make sure i fill out these tax forms by all means put them on the list but just realize every single person you meet has something that you don't have yeah and you're going to be spinning your wheels forever trying to catch up but at the same time every person you meet needs something that you got and we can, as human beings, maybe even as living creatures, we're by default going to focus on the things that are out of place because that's the survival mechanism that we yeah. have. That, that helps us realize, you know, where potential danger could exist. So we're always going to be identifying our gaps anyways. You know, identify the gap, hear it, let it go, and, and get back to what you need to do because success is only going to come from sticking with it. Amen to that. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Next, I wanted to touch on a lesson that also really connected with me. That was 27 and not dead. You mentioned that notable celebrities died at the age of 27, which included Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse. So can you can you tell us a little bit about what you meant? I think now, I mean, because I wrote this book, the one, the, you know, the book you're talking about, I finished it in... Uh, 2015. I wrote it, I think what I was searching for at that point was kind of my moment of significance. Mm -hmm. um, all, all humans have a need of significance and we find it in a million different ways. So, you know, you can find it by having a million Instagram followers. You can find it by dating somebody who is completely dependent on you. You can find it by having children. You can find it by, you know, winning the Super Bowl. You know, just this need of significance, this need of being seen. And I think at that point in, in my artistic career, I was kind of feeling this, this lack of acknowledgement or need, but at the same time, not being aware that I had this, that I had this urge of significance. And I think when it came to that idea of like, you know, some of the most pro prolific artists, you know, they, they passed away at 27, they left their indentation, they tattooed their, their legacy and their impact on the world. And it'll be there forever or as long as, you know, now I'm realizing or as long as our generation exists, because people are every day, less and less people are talking about Elvis, uh, you know, and less and less people will talk about Jordan. And 
you know, now whatever the, the cool rappers are or, or the cool artists that are being celebrated 50 years from now, they'll be forgotten too. So I think it was born out of my need for significance. And I think at this point now, I kind of recognize that need and, you know, how I can create a more sustainable life to still kind of have that feeling. And I think for me now, uh, that's come through adding value for other people. I can feel significant adding value for other people and it's more sustainable. And I think that's what it is. Not that it's, it's better or worse in another way. It's just, I can keep doing this without killing myself. I realized the same thing along my line of work. At one point I realized when I'm living in service of others and I'm trying to improve the quality of life of people around me, I'm more creative and I have more energy. And as you mentioned, you know, so we can't look at what makes others special and want that for ourselves because it's no longer special. You write in your book, we all have something within us that is special. And this is something that it's a principle that I live by. You, you just said that, you know, we can learn something from everybody around us. And, you know, I have this personal mantra where I just, I have to believe that everybody out there has something special inside of them. It's really up to them whether they want to believe in themselves enough to tap into that and maybe create through that and give to the world. But is that something that you feel like is true? I feel like, I mean, the more and more, you know, I've taken a deeper dive into it, it's, it's really kind of got interesting because I'm not the I'm not the most into, you know, believing in the supernatural or kind of believing into ideas of fate or whatever. But I mean, when you start digging into yourself, even scientifically and starting to look at what you're made of on a molecular level, you know, you're kind of just like, wait, I am composed of all these things that are moving at random. Yeah. You know, and I am a combination of all these things that are moving at random, you know, from the smallest quartz. I don't even know what the smallest thing is called anymore to, <laughs> to, 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 you know, to what we define as our body, you know, where we start and where the rest of existence st stops and starts, whatever is really a perception thing because with air has molecules, our skin has molecules. Where does it start and stop is up to us. And you start to realize you're like, Hey, well, if it's all random, do I have any real free will? You know, you decided, yes, you have will. Even if you are a combination of random molecules moving around, if you kill somebody, we're putting you in jail. And But I started to realize that we, we, we have these natural, all of us have our, our own natural enthusiasms. We start to lean towards things. We start to fall in love with things. We start to gravitate towards certain things. That It kind of really feels like it was just coded in us, whether, you know, whether you want to believe that that coding was divine or whether you want, want to believe that coding in, in itself was just random or a pattern, you know, from our lineage and our heritage. So I think from that perspective, it's kind of like, hey, you have to discover yourself in relation to the rest of the world and see what happens. So for me, again, I started as a spoken word artist and then that converted to rap. And then I thought, you know, hip hop was my life. And then that converted into writing. So I was like, no, no, it was never about just hip hop and rap. It was about putting words together and ideas and books, but then also directing my own music videos and doing both on a very high level. And, getting enough validation and success to keep doing them and not, you know, treating them as hobbies anymore and being like, well, what, what parts of this are exciting to me? And I think I started to measure it as, Hey, well, what parts of these, what, what type of things am I doing where I'm encountering challenges and problems regularly, but they don't frustrate me. I'm excited for it. I credit my accountant with that. Actually, he, uh, when, when my book, first dropped and you know it was available on amazon and i I'd be, I'd be getting checks in american dollars canadian dollars british pounds and euros because amazon sold in all those places i get all these checks 
And just his level of excitement towards doing my taxes with all those different currencies because he had never seen it before. That's dope. And it told me, and it was stressful. I just wanted to not deal with it. And he was just excited and, God, I'm so excited to tackle this. And I'm like, you're a really good example of somebody who's in the right field. Like, you enjoy what you do, you know, and it's no different than Eminem putting words together. These guys are obsessed with what they do. So it is a matter of really doing a lot of self, uh, you know, exploration, trying to figure out your natural enthusiasms and opinions. Maybe even abandon this idea of living a passion, because I think we're in a session is what we need. And again, I don't know if we get to choose it. I really don't know if we get to choose this obsession, because uh, I think it starts to, when it hits us on a molecular level into our core and it excites us. You know, I'm not sure how much of that is our, our nurture versus our nature. That's deep, bro. Great way to think. of it. So next, I do want to talk on lesson 25. It's called Poison. And you mentioned the damaging voice in your life is the one inside your head. I don't know what terrible things other people spit your way, but that shit is effective only if it finds a voice within you to hold hands with, right? So can you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, if somebody calls me ugly, you know, it's not going to impact me as hard unless I've already had a voice in my in, in here calling me ugly. And now their opinion and, and that inner voice of mine, now they, they begin to hold hands and that kind of empowers them. Um, I think about that a lot because sometimes, as you said, you know, identifying gaps in your life, you know, it, it goes back to that saying everything kind of ties in together where it's we have to be really mindful of the voices that we have in our head and even where they came from. Yep. I got voices. I got voices in my head from like when I was ten years old. From that one kid I met once, who was you know, who was a dickhead to me, and <laughs> you know, and and it stuck and it never went away. And interestingly enough, and the, the new book I'm working on that drops in October, uh, November, I actually tell a story about one of these kids. And what it was is I met a kid ten years old. You know, we had he had a, he was very mean and rude and racist towards me. And, you know, we're in junior school and it was it was something I didn't obviously appreciate, but I didn't see him again until I ran into him at a party in university. Wow. And he was a completely different person. And by completely different person, I just mean a normal adult. Like, yeah, he, yeah. Like most of us, he grew up from being a little dumbass kid to a, a, a regular adult. And when I saw him, he was like, hey, man, welcome to the party. You want something to drink? What's going on? Like, he didn't remember me. But I remembered him because he had such an impact on me. But I think what it it made me realize was like, hey, man, like you tattooed this kid in your head who doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, and and you've allowed that voice to have this real estate in your head. Now, if anybody else sounds like him, it it empowers them. So if somebody says something that what that kid said, it it can still get underneath my skin. And I feel like the moment I became aware of this, it lost that voice, lost some of its power. Wow. And. You know, and even and even till this day, there's still some of these voices and some of these needs to to win over certain people or certain types of people. And I'm being very cognizant of them. And I was like, well, where does this come from? Why am I trying to win these people over? Especially since I've had a lot of a lot of good things happen to me in in my career on on different levels. And it's still I still kind of feel a chip on my shoulder. But I think what I'm not going to do is validate them and you know derail everything I've created just to make a certain subset of people happy because. 15 years ago, somebody hurt my feelings. And sometimes we just don't realize that we, we create these survival mechanisms to deal with that stuff that happened back then, and we never update it. I didn't grow up in a rough neighborhood, but my school was in a rough neighborhood, my middle school and my high school. So certain 
survival mechanisms and techniques and just ways of living that were necessary for me to survive those years, I carried them into places that they didn't need to be. When I became a school teacher, I didn't need that anymore. When I became an adult, I didn't need them anymore. And I started to realize that, hey, this stuff is holding me back more than it's helping me now. And a lot of us just really have to go through that and be like, okay, I needed this when I was living with so-and-so, or I needed this when I was the little brother or when I was the older brother. But now, you know, let's say you're the older brother and you had to, you had to, you know, wrangle all your younger siblings, but now you're adults and your younger siblings ain't kids anymore. They don't need you to wrangle them anymore. It's about letting that stuff go. So I think this idea of the poison that we carry is because sometimes we, we don't realize that we hold on to familiarity more than anything else. And if it's familiar, we'll pick it over good, you know, even if it's a horrible situation. So I think that's kind of what that realization was for me. It doesn't go away. I'm still dealing with it. And I'm sure once I, I address one voice, another voice will start, you know, will take that real estate and it'll continue. And I think it's just about realizing that these voices aren't the enemy. They were there. They served the purpose. And now it's just time to let them go. I hope that resonates with everybody out there as much as it resonates with me. So thank you for that. I did want to discuss a a post you did back in December, and it kind of reminded me because you were just talking about something like that. The strongest don't survive, the most adaptable do. And, you know, you mentioned you started your journey 10 years ago and how you had favorite artists, you had people that you really look up to and you thought they would kill it. And then you you had other people who you're like, oh, I don't know if I really like their stuff, but, you know, we'll see what happens. And you notice the people who really stuck with it are the ones that uh, get through, right? So can you tell us about what you've learned through that journey? Um, I think just realizing that, you know, I, I think uh, the rapper uh, Plies, he, he said it. He said, uh, you know, I don't, I know a lot of dumb rich people yeah. but i don't know i don't know any lazy rich people and uh and, and i think i kind of figured that out as well too as an artist because i think when i first came in i came in very idealistic i came in like hey i'm gonna clean up the game i'm gonna add bring <laughs> lyricism back i'm gonna do this you know forget all that forget <laughs> all that you know poppy snap your finger music laffy taffy shit forget all that but then you start to realize that you kind of get into the game you're like yo no if you've heard of these people, and even if they're making what you consider bubblegum music, they've had to put in a lot of work just to get there. You know, nothing is handed to any of these people, and they had a work ethic that got them there, whether you agree with their artwork or not. And that really made me have a whole new appreciation for artists. I think in the beginning, I was only measuring them in terms of, do I like what they're putting out there? And I think later on, it became like, hey, if I know who this person is, that means they had to have worked you know, 1,000 times harder than the average human being to get to this point. Even with hookups, even if they have a famous father or mother, like, it's not easy. And I I, I realized that even recently meeting some Bollywood actors. Some of these guys are grandchildren and children of of other famous Bollywood actors, and it's still not easy for them. It's still tough competition. They have to work harder than anybody who wants to make it in Hollywood. It's really crazy. And I think really having a value and appreciation for that effort uh, especially now that almost 10 years has gone by and I've seen so many people's stories play out. And some of the most talented people who didn't have that work ethic, they kind of fell to the wayside and found something more realistic to do. Oh, that's real, man. So you said yesterday in your takeover for Chapters Indigo, I know I sound like I just stalk you all the time. <laughs> no, I appreciate it, man. It's thorough. It's, it's, I appreciate it. 
Yeah, yeah. You said uh, you you don't think that there's anything more important than gratitude, right? And, you know, healthcare and medicine is really coming to this point now where we're realizing how powerful gratitude can be for the mind, body, and spirit, right? So can you tell us a little bit about what you know about gratitude? I think we all kind of are on the same page when it comes to the importance of gratitude. I think, you know, if, you know, I think, I think in that post, I, I mentioned a Lamborghini or a Ferrari or something. And I said along the lines of, hey, you know, the only reason you enjoy the car or you enjoy the trip around the world or that first class flight is because you are able to express gratitude towards it, Boom. you know, and if you're unable to express gratitude towards it, you won't enjoy it. And the, and, and the challenge in our and who we are as humans is we get very we uh, we get very comfortable very quickly and we grow accustomed to whatever our conditions are good or bad. I started, you know, started seeing that pattern with myself, started seeing that pattern with other people I knew, especially once I started spending more time in Los Angeles and Hollywood. It's seeing people that have things, especially when I was, oh, in, in my early years, when I was a complete struggling artist, seeing people who had significantly more than I could ever dream of and still seeing them unhappy, seeing them miserable, seeing them stressed out, seeing them complaining. And, and realizing that a lot of that had to do with the fact that they got used to it. Like, okay, the, you know, the first red carpet is exciting. The second red carpet is exciting. The third one gets a little bit annoying. The tenth one is just work, you know? The first movie premiere, the second movie, it, it, you know, you start to realize that's with everything, you know? You're, that's real. You're, you're a med student, you know, the first day, that you know, you get that, that, that full-time situation, you know, it, it was no different when I was a teacher. I went from being a student teacher to a full-time teacher to having student teachers under me. You you know, you're going you're going from resident to full time doctor, you know, yeah. and you're gonna have that moment where you're like, Yo, I'm done. Finally, <laughs> I, I ain't gotta answer to nobody and then a couple of years later you're the guy who's treating the residents and this and this is a cycle and you'll get used to whatever conditions you have. You'll get used to whatever money you make, you'll get used to whatever perks and lifestyle you have. And, you know, that's just in our nature. And I think for me, I've become very cognizant of that. So I try to really live the spectrum. So, you know, in December, you know, the first week of December, I was, you know, I was at Nick Jonas and Priyanka Chopra's wedding and we were in a palace. You know, a week later, I'm staying in my friend's apartment in Berlin and, you know, he doesn't turn on his heat because he just spent six weeks living in Palestine doing community service and living nice and simple. So he ain't got no heat on. And I was like, I, I, I appreciate the spectrum because I don't want to get used to staying in palaces and obviously, I don't want to get used to staying in cold-ass Berlin apartments either. But I, I appreciate that I can have that breadth of experience. And I think for me, that's been the real thing that I've been thinking about, is being able to have that gratitude and growing from some uncomfortable conditions. And, and I think it's also a principle of stoicism, you know, where they, they encourage you to spend three days away from everything you love, three days a month, you know, from all the luxuries yeah. of your life. Because we appreciate everything, you know, we'll appreciate it more in its absence. And let's not wait till we completely lose something to appreciate it. So I think for me, really trying to look at gratitude as an art, looking at it as a religion, because I really feel like it's an easy sell to get people on board because they're already expressing gratitude on a daily basis. They've just lost the ability to express gratitude for some of the simplest things in life. I agree, man. What we focus on, it expands. And we're either counting our blessings or we're counting what we don't have, right? So it's, it's pretty simple. One leads towards a direction of stress 
and the others in the opposite direction, you know? And uh, a lot of what you mentioned, there's a lot of neurochemistry involved there that's the same for everybody. It's a lot like doing a drug, you know? You get this dopamine surge when you do a drug, but then the more you do the drug, the less dopamine that comes out on the other side, but then the more drug you crave and you create this cycle of just, I want more, I want more. And I really do believe one of the best ways to take a step out is to take a deep breath and to practice gratitude. You know, no matter how much we accomplish, we're always going to feel like we didn't do enough until we start really finding gratitude for it, you know? And that's something that, you know, no matter how old you are, it's always going to be relevant. I do, I do appreciate you sharing that. And, and I think just to add on to that, I, I really want people to also understand that, you know, these, these cycles of dopamine chases, I don't want people to look at that as, as wrong. We're all suckers for it in one way or the other. Yep. I just want people to ask the simple question of however they're going about it right now, is it sustainable or not? And mm-hmm. I think it just continue going. I always kind of go back to that question. It's like, Wisdom. do you think you can keep this up for the next 10 years without burning out? And I think, again, me searching for excuses to say thank you, I could do that forever. Me being like, oh, I got 300,000 followers on Instagram. Now I need four. Now I need a mil. Now I need five mil. You know, I don't know if that's as sustainable as me being like, hey, can I say thank you because I can walk barefoot in the grass? Can I say thank you for the sunshine today? You know, I, I that concept of sustainability i tell my homies this all the time you know i got friends who have such big dreams you know we're in our late 20s and like we're really trying to make an impact on the globe and i'm always like hey like now if you want to make this sustainable for more than 10 years uh think about your lifestyle you know are you are you drinking too much are you doing too many drugs like you know make sure that you can you can do all this and keep it sustainable for long periods of time and i think you you could use that just as a tangible Remind yourself, where am I? What am I doing? Can I keep this going? So that was, you know, it really clicked in my head when you said that. I really like that. Um, so next question I have for you. Do you meditate or do you pray? Um, I currently do not pray. I have, in, in the world of meditation, I, I, I've tried a little bit. Um, I do, uh, so right now, currently, uh, I suffered a, a back injury, uh, in, uh, June of 2017. Mm-hmm. And so I have like a, a stretching program that I have to do. I got to keep those, you know, keep the glutes loose. I got to keep the, the hamstrings loose. So what I've been trying to do is use, use that stretching as an opportunity to meditate. Um, so currently it's just counting out loud, quietly trying to recenter my, my breathing. So I think focusing on being present is a, a little bit something I do, but in the traditional, do I sit there sense, uh, I'll be a thousand percent honest. No, I actually, uh, somebody gave me a one year free membership to Headspace and I've opened it like three times. Um, and again, a, a lot of it that might have to do with even identifying gaps. I know it was uh, Jay and he said something along the lines of, you know, obviously 10 minutes a day is, is better than nothing, but 10 minutes a day isn't much he goes you know we have to live a life of immersion we have to immerse immerse ourselves into things and um definitely making an effort to stay present but uh in the world of traditional sit down shut the fuck up (laughs) rid myself of sounds and and everything meditation it's not happening as much uh right now there's a busy brain up there but i'm working on it okay okay respect so how has your faith in god or the universe how has it helped you achieve your biggest aspirations or has it helped um, that's why, I mean, again, I'm, I'm literally 
three weeks away from finishing my next book and and one and, and this isn't this is this is gonna be long chapters so each of these uh-huh. chapters is like five pages and one of them is my entire relationship with god from like little kid you know to the first time i remember really praying to like where i am now i think i think the the importance of faith the importance of uh you know believing in something beyond us or you know believing that you know we're not the end all be all uh i see value in that i'm a little bit more grounded in you know what you see is what you get i'm a i'm a big proponent of science i'm a big proponent of i don't knowism i i enjoy having my beliefs challenged and 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 you know wiped off the table and and me being like whoa at this age i just learned something i've never knew ever existed before so I'm not very rigid in any beliefs I hold like that. Uh, but I do have a lot of respect and see the value of even traditional Western Christian religion, because it's, you know, what's not an opinion is that it is the foundation of, you know, the society you and I both grew up in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as now there are obviously people who are exploiting it for their own personal profit, just as people are in Sikhi, just as people are in pretty much every faith, you know, religion is a great way to, you know, keep uneducated people from asking too many questions and mm-hmm. keep people living in, uh, you know, un- unequitable conditions to help them justify that. You know, the karma system is horrible for that, making people think it's, it's that they're supposed to be where they are mm-hmm. and not really encouraging any social mobility. But I do feel like a lot of these, these, these faiths and ideas, you know, they existed before the scientific method was perfected. And so I look at it as an art, the art of being a good person, the art of being a better person. It's just a bunch of human beings try their best to create that art. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't think the guys who made it in the beginning were sitting there trying to figure out how they can profit off of it. I don't think it, it was a Scientology or anything like that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, where it's at right now is a different story. So I always challenge people to, to keep mind of their beliefs. But I do have a lot of respect for religion in terms of it being the art of being a better person. But I mean, as, as, again, with my work and both the books that I have that are out, I do talk a lot about Sikh philosophy. I, I try not to push it to people as a religion. Uh, and I really do try to make it more of a, a study of human nature and having a better relationship with the truth, whatever that may be. Likewise, man. So, you know, I, I believe the longest chapter in your book is Lesson 39, and it's titled Ayahuasca. And, you know, now we've had multiple healthcare professionals on our podcast, last of which was a neurosurgeon named Dr. Eben Alexander, who have confirmed research into psychedelics. And it's shown that they can play an important role in mental health if done in the proper setting. And disclaimer, I don't recommend anybody doing them recreationally. But you spoke a little bit about your experience in Lima, Peru, right? And man, this yeah. was fascinating. Can you can you dive a little bit deeper into that? Yeah, so I actually went at the recommendation of a pharmacist. So this, he was a pharmacist, you know. <laughs> I, I literally thought in my head, I was like, whoa, this guy's a responsible adult, and he did this, and he didn't <laughs> die, and his wife went with him. She didn't participate, and even she said it was a great experience. So off his, and then I ended up going to the one place at the time in Peru that was actually the only place that was approved by the Peruvian Board of Health, and, you know, there was a nurse on site, because I was very mindful. I was like, man, I can't, my story can't end with me dying in, in the jungles of Peru when I walked there, yeah. Um, <laughs> But it was definitely, it was, it was, what it was is I had in, in previously, you know, 
uh, recreationally and, you know, in, in, in my own goals of trying to understand myself as well. But uh, I'm both. I've I done mushrooms. And the one thing I had realized with mushrooms was, look, if, you're, if your life ain't, if things aren't in order, this is just going to bring it all out. And you're going to have a very unpleasant time. And for me, that meant, like, if you had an unpaid bill that you just forgot to pay off at the point. So uh, this ayahuasca trip was actually, it was my celebration of getting out of debt. I was in a lot of debt for about four four years. And this was, uh, I had just got to zero. Um, it was it was a very unique experience. I think now with the education I have, I probably uh, don't encourage people to, to spend that amount amount of money. I don't think it's uh, completely necessary. That's a little bit the the shamanism and all of it is a little bit more novelty the way I look at it. And I think as well in the chapter, I haven't revisited that in a while, but I think I do talk a lot about it as more of a psychedelic versus a scientific uh, spiritual experience. Yeah, you do. Um, yeah, so I think a little bit more of you know hearing talks from chemical engineers or what have you really kind of explain that, Hey, you can't even use the word ayahuasca because there's 10,000 different variations of the, of, of the recipe. And, oh. you know, a lot of it could be made. It was a unique experience. It was something that, uh, I had really wanted to do. And, uh, we, uh, yeah, when we got there, it, there was a lot of novelty, we, you know, having our, our, our tea leaves red, having, you know, a whole day of silence. And then when we actually took the drink, so ayahuasca translates to the root of death. And uh, pretty much it, the way it was described to me before, it was like, this is mushrooms on acid. And you mix <laughs> them together, see where, where it takes you and it helps you learn a lot about yourself. And I think uh, what the experience does is it really, uh, another friend had equated this to acid, actually. But he pretty much said, it's, it's like being in a very crowded room naked. And some people consider that hell. Some people consider that the most liberating thing in the world. Okay. Yeah, all about your perception. So I think with ayahuasca, it, it, it put me in that same situation where it was, you know, there, there was a combination, of, you know, when that DMT kicks in and you kind of have this one with everything, you know, and that's no different than what people are trying to accomplish with their, with their uh, meditation. You know, Siki talks about that a lot too, or just, you know, re no longer seeing yourself as a, as, as a drop and realizing you're a part of the ocean. Uh, but at the same time, uh, having this calm and this peace. And I think what it did for me is it really helped me understand what death will probably feel like. You know, I think we all, you know, from a scientific perspective too, like when it's time to go, the brain's just going to flood us with this stuff. Yep. And, you know, whether, yeah, whether you got impaled, shot, or you're a 90-year-old man in your deathbed, you know, this is pretty much what the last feeling is going to be. So I think I really wanted to have that experience of what is it, what is it going to feel like when I, when I die so I can kind of take that off my list of things I should be worrying about and just enjoying the life that I had. And, um, yeah, it was about, I think, 40% pleasant, 60% not so pleasant. And a lot of, I was able to own that. I wasn't, you know, I didn't realize how, how healthy I, I should have been eating beforehand. I think, I'm not sure if I mentioned in the book, but the, the last meal I had before doing it was McDonald's. And uh, it wasn't, you know, later on, I didn't do any research going into it. And then later on, I did research after the fact. And then I learned that people were like, no, you know, try, try going vegan for six weeks beforehand. Clean out your system, get it all ready. It was insightful. I think I learned a lot from the experience. Um, you know, and maybe one day I'll, I'll I'll revisit it. You know, it may not be in the jungles, the Amazon jungles this time. <laughs> I might find something a little bit more comfortable. But I think you know, you, you learn and you grow. You know, you you said something uh, about that experience that related with me in terms of meditation. You were talking about 
you were having a vision about a wolf and you thought to yourself, oh, this looks like the wolf from The Simpsons. The wolf started reshaping itself into the cartoon and you began understanding how your thoughts can shape your visions, right? And yeah. then you go on to say the goal wasn't control though, that your thoughts were actually polluting it and your goal was to stop thinking. And that, I've been meditating for four years every day now. I've noticed that I can see how my thoughts influence my ideas of things and how they can warp things. And I realize that even that is a bias and that ultimately the goal is to come in and to not think and to just be, right? And to be really detached. When you said that and I read that, I was like, dude, this like totally makes sense to me. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and it was a on- very difficult concept for me to grasp because they kept saying like, if you feel like you're going to die, just die. What and do you I think mean, you any- become? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what do you think you become? And, and I feel like anybody listening who's done anything, any type of intoxicant, whether you're talking about alcohol, weed, anything, there's always this level of, hey, get your compo- try to regain your composure. And it was the first time I was told, no, regaining your composure is not on the list. You may not. You have to let go completely. And that's just something we, we all rarely do in life. So I feel like I might have to practice that a little bit more in doing so. And uh, uh, But again, even, even my inability to do so was something that I learned from it. Yeah, man. You actually said, the shaman said, if you feel like you're going to die, don't resist it, die. <laughs> And I was like, holy shit, man, that's some serious stuff right there. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 was in, it was intense, and I'm, I'm grateful for the experience. And that's, that I made it out alive. <laughs> definitely, man. Yeah, you, uh, lastly, you did say, like, there was a time during the trip where you, you left uh, the tent or wherever you were, and you, you were outside, and there was a junior shaman who was like, I'm going to let you spend five more minutes outside, but you need to come back in because the outside world is distracting. You need to go back inside go back within yourself and face what you need to face because that's what the experience is about. That's so symbolic for what life is, man, because like everything physical, money, cars, clothes, women, it's all a distraction. And like us being able to look inside and to be able to you know, kind of align with that, I feel like it changes the way we value the outside world. And if we get it right in here, uh, I notice a lot more goes right outside. Uh, Completely, have- and that's a good point. Just because, and that's the big thing I've, I've realized in Hollywood is because a lot of these guys. I, I had homeboys that were making, you know, like a hundred thousand dollars a month, yeah. and you know, th- and, yeah, and you're and, and sad, but they were sad. And I realized the reason they were sad is is not because you know the money doesn't make them happy. It's because they're actually now they can afford to continually distract themselves. Like Ooh. as the shaman, the shaman said to me, close your eyes, go inwards, you know, but if, if I have, you know, and he took me, he didn't let me stay outside. You know what I mean? He brought me back inside, but you get to a position where you can buy anything you want and do anything. Then now you don't ever have to look inside. Now it's like, Hey, let me spend the money on this. Once that wears off, I'll spend the money on this. Once that wears off. And again, going back to sustainability, if you're going to keep earning it, but then by all means, go ahead and use it, you know? But at the same time, I think that was a really big moment for me to kind of realize that, hey, you know, I'm really glad that most of my struggles when I went through this, I couldn't afford to run away from them. I couldn't afford any other options. I had to stand there and face them. So now that, you know, you know, and I'm very grateful, things are dramatically better for me now. I'm not resorting to any of that stuff. I still live a very simple life, uh, even though I don't have to anymore. And it's because I realized the futility in most of those things you know, and I, and I mean, maybe if I was 10 years younger, I'd be balling out, but I, I'm, I'm really grateful. And then the circle I keep now, too, there's a lot of 
you know, people who are well-to-do but nice and cheap, you know, sticking with our parents, uh, our parents' tradition of just being very cheap. Amen. <laughs> and that is – thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. So before we transition to the last segment of our show, uh, I wanted to read to our audience something that you wrote at the end of your book that just uh, vibed with really hardcore. So uh, it said, get out there, be uncomfortable, make mistakes, get embarrassed. It's not a big deal. We'll all be dead soon, right? That's some powerful stuff for any creatives out there who are just having trouble putting themselves out there. Man, we're all going to die. So like whatever you got, just get out there, man. Even if you mess up, you're probably going to learn something. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, and you know what? Even if you believe in heaven and hell, you're still going to die. And exactly. All of, you know, these expectations and these struggles and these pressures and everything that people are placing on you, they're not going to follow you, irrespective of what you believe happens after you die. And I think... People, it's not in our coding to want to remember our mortality. You know, I don't think, you know, Mother Nature really wants us to think about our death, but I think it's such a liberating idea. Uh, you know, Six Lassie pushes it a lot. And I actually, uh, I think we, I just posted that on uh, Instagram with an extended story behind it mm-hmm. uh, and explaining that one of the, the origins of that was my father because I had lost my grandfather. If this was the last day of your life, what would the decision be? And I've been, I've been really kind of pushing that, you know, towards myself sometimes. Because I realize the things that that pushes me to do is not the big, you know, giant steps in my life. It's the small things. It's yeah. just being able to call somebody and being like, hey, can we, can we, you know, can we have a discussion about this? Or having that uncomfortable conversation with somebody or, you know, having an uncomfortable conversation with ourselves. And I think those are the subtle things that we're always avoiding on a regular basis. But we're all, you know, on our phones, distracting ourselves, getting that dopamine to avoid that stuff. But if it's the last day of our lives, what are the things that we wish we could do? We should live like that accordingly. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a watered, watered down, mild version of YOLO, but I think it works. <laughs> That's dope, man. Awesome. So the last segment of our show is basically uh, we go on our Instagram and we tell our followers to submit questions. And we had a ton of questions submitted to you. First question that was submitted was by Jazzy Rye 11 and she asked, what moments or experiences in your life most inspired compassion in you? Most recently, I had this moment with um, Lily's puppy, actually, uh, Scarborough. I was taking care of him. Uh, he's a young guy. He just turned one. I had a dog growing up. Uh, I had a big German Shepherd. So big guy, you know, family dog. And I was the, uh, you know... You know, it, it's a good experience. I had him for 11 years, lived out his life. It was beautiful. And then I, you know, our whole family was so heartbroken over losing them. We just not decided no more dogs in our life. And then Lily went ahead and got this dog. She got this little three-pound guy, and he was a puppy. And it was just very, you know, he was misbehaving, and, you know, he was biting. He didn't do a lot of damage, but there was this moment where I had to, I had to leave. And I was watching him, but I had to go out for a dinner. And I got a little bit late. And then I came back. And when I came back, just the way he was crying and the way he looked at me, it, re- it just kind of melted me because I, I really realized, like, whoa, like, this guy's only been on this earth for, like, five months. And I have so many expectations of him to, like, not pee on the carpet, not do this, not that. And he looked at me like, I'm sorry, please don't leave me again. And it really melted me being like, yo, I'm being too hard on him and other people and on myself. Wow. You know, everybody's just trying their best. Like he's, you know, he's a year now. He's way better behaved. He gets everything. And I was like, you know, I was comparing this five-month-year-old little puppy to my 11-year-old dog who had everything figured out. 
And I don't remember the early times when my dog used to have accidents in the house and stuff too. But that really made me have a lot more compassion towards kind of everybody in my life at that point who I had unnecessary opinions on and how they were conducting their life and doing their stuff. And, you know, it's a challenge because, you know, I am, I, I try to strive to be a high level achiever and, and, and a hard worker, but, you know, I'm a human being. I got to cut myself some slack and through cutting myself some slack, I need to cut other people's slack and let everyone realize that everyone's just trying their best with what they have, with the tools they have. And not everybody knows what I know and I don't know what everybody else knows. And we just have to have a lot more compassion towards each other for that. And instead of waiting for others to show us compassion, let's be the first ones to show them compassion. Yo, man, we're all at different points in our lives. You know, that's that's so beautiful, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. We had Noor L underscore E-I-N. She asked, how do you get yourself to focus, to work and create when you don't want to? That's a good question. I don't know. We should ask somebody else that. Uh, it's, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I think the, 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 the saving grace for me was my years, uh, living in LA with Lily, just because she's such a workhorse that, you know, even if you work half as hard as her, you're still working like five times harder than any other human being. So I don't think I'm the hardest worker in the room anymore, but, uh, I'm def- I definitely realize my output is a lot higher than most people just because of those experiences. Um, let's not rely on motivation. Let's rely, rely on habits. So, you know, realize what your triggers are, realize the things that are getting in the way. So, like, for me, the big thing was having a computer that didn't have Internet access while working on my book, you know. Oh, so just wow. So now I don't have to wor- worry about willpower. It's like, oh, I'm going to go on Reddit. Oh, I'm going to go on this hip-hop website. Like, they don't exist because I can't go on the website. I, I installed Chrome plugins on my laptop as well. So I got half an hour on all my procrastination websites a day before I get locked out. So really, you know, I have an alarm clock like a real alarm clock, not a cell phone to wake me up in the morning. So being very mindful of your triggers and creating an environment so you don't have to rely on your own willpower to get stuff done and realizing that, you know, 80% of it is getting started. And once you get started, you'll, you'll start to develop flow. Love it, man. So Nick RN Injector asked, I want to know how people perceive your straight up truths. Have you ever been criticized for your work and how do you overcome criticism? I get criticized every day. I, I honestly don't care. Like, it's, <laughs> I, 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 I think where I grew up is a little bit, people are a little bit rougher around the edges. So we, you know, everybody kind of takes shots at everybody and throws little darts and daggers all the time. So, you know, my, 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 all my childhood friends are assholes and they make fun of me all the time. <laughs> but I have a certain level of skin. So I think if I see something online, um, you know, if, if there's no wit to it, then it really not going to have much of an impact on me. As well as I kind of realize that, you know, online criticism and hate is like the modern day graffiti. The people want to be noticed. And I have compassion for that. And I get that. Um, I personally don't engage with it just because it's, it would, it'll always be the minority for any creator, anybody creating. It'll always be that one out of 100 or one out of 50. And it just I don't think that's fair to the other 50. You know, yeah. everybody's like, great work, good job. And that starts to become the C. And then all of a sudden someone's like, you suck. And you're like, oh, I need to address this one person. Yeah, I'm not here to prove people wrong. I'm here to, to, to grow a community and, and let people know that their, the energy that they've invested into me is worth it. I, I started out sleeping on people's couches. And everybody who's ever helped me since day one is still pretty much in my life. And making them know that they're right and, 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 and putting that love, energy, time, and attention into me is, is much more sustainable 
than trying to prove the invisible internet wrong. Man, thank you. Thank you. So our last question, we ask all of our guests who join us for the podcast, what is your definition of medspiration? Um, I think my definition of medspiration would be, you know, really paying attention to, you know, what you're consuming in your life, you know, mentally, physically, and spiritually, and the impact that it has on you. You know, just because Humble the Poet can take cyberbullying and not be impacted doesn't mean you have to, to, to live up to me. I think it's uh, really encouraging self-awareness, trying to understand what you take in, how much you take in, how much of an impact it has on you. And at the same time, too, is what you put out there. You know, whenever we want to help other people, you will encounter dramatically less resistance and, and obstacles when you want to help other people. It's only when you're trying to do stuff for yourself are you going to come across the naysayers and the what have you. So being, being aware of what you're bringing into your world, being aware of what you're putting out there, and anything that you want in your life, the first step, in my opinion, is to put, your, put that stuff out there. You know, be, be what you want. Be the friend that you want in your life. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I thought it was powerful. If you guys loved it, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, a public charity. The more you help our podcast grow, the more people we're able to help. It is our mission to serve in underserved and underprivileged areas all over the world. So be sure to click subscribe and rate us five stars. The bigger we get, the more people we're able to help, guys. So thank you so much for all the support out there. And again, a big thank you to our sponsor, Caribbean Medical University. Caribbean Medical University has partnered with Medspiration to bring you a once-in-a-lifetime discount. You can visit cmumed.org forward slash Medspiration and enter the discount code MDSPR to have your entire application fee waived. That's a $75 value. Apply today and see if medicine is in your future. Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to live a healthier lifestyle mentally, physically, and spiritually. And as always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and do something med-spiring.